Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 26 again, as we keep working our way through this um, first gospel. And this morning we'll look at verses 57 to 68. 57 to 68. We've all seen little children, if we have children, probably our own children did this when they were toddlers covering their eyes with their hands and calling out, I'm hiding, I'm hiding, can you find me? When children do that, we're repeatedly entertained for they don't understand the absurdity of what they're doing. But when adults play such absurd games, refusing to face obvious facts, we're not so amused. We find denial of the obvious to reflect some corruption. That's what we have in our text this morning. People playing games with the truth. Games which are transparent even to the casual observer who will pay attention and listen and think about it. But this was not a game. Our text today records the the first trial of Jesus, which is a trial before the highest courts of the Jews. The court of the Jews. Here we have leaders officially distorting the truth. And here we're forced to look at ourselves and to consider how serious we are about the truth. Let me read it. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us. Christ, who hit you? Two things I'd like to point out from this text. The first is this wickedness often claims to be righteous. Wickedness often claims to be righteous. Or to say it very simply, evil poses as good. You know, no one likes a phony. But unfortunately, we find phoniness in our own hearts as we consider the attitude and the actions of this Jewish court. We need to hear again God's warning delivered by the prophet Jeremiah 
who says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Not just these men's hearts, but our hearts. Beware, wickedness can claim to be righteousness. Evil poses as good with them and with us. In this account, we see it happening three, in three ways as Jesus is put on trial. Three ways that we see wickedness claiming to be righteous. The first is, they claim to do justice, but they broke all the rules. <laughs> they claim to do justice, but they broke all the rules. Let me explain first exactly who was gathered to examine Jesus. This was what we would call the Supreme Court of the land of Judea, the ultimate preserver of justice. This group was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of three groups of people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders or leaders of the prominent families. This body had 70 members and was presided over by the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. A quorum of 23 was required, 23 of the, seven in, of the 70, in order to do business. For such a, trial of the, as, such a trial as this, this was a court. This was a court that was trusted to do justice, but broke their own rules. William Barclay, a New Testament scholar, explains some of the ways the Sanhedrin's, some of the Sanhedrin's regulations and how they broke them. For example, all, one of the regulations was all criminal cases must be tried during the daytime and must be completed during the daytime. Jesus' trial took place between midnight and 3 o'clock in the morning. Another rule was that criminal cases could, own, could not be tried during the Passover season. But the Passover crowd had already gathered in the city. Jesus had just eaten the Passover meal. Another rule said that only if the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the same day that it was tried. Otherwise, a night must elapse between the, before the pronouncement of the verdict for the purpose of the court feeling Feelings of mercy having time to arise. But there was no mercy. And Jesus was declared guilty on the spot. Another rule was that no decision of the Sanhedrin could be made unless they met officially in their own meeting place, which was called the Hall of the Strewn Stone, of the Hewn Stone. But this was a night meeting in the private residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. Oh, they claimed to do justice, justice, but they broke all their own rules, which had been established to protect justice. That, my friend, is evil posing as good. Wickedness, when you're claiming to do righteousness. That's the first way they did. The second, there was another way that evil pretended to be good. They claimed to love the truth, but they wouldn't listen to evidence. Their rules demanded that every trial had to begin by laying before the court all the evidence for the innocence of the accused before 
any evidence of guilt could be presented. But no evidence for Jesus' in, in, innocence was ever introduced in this court. Evil. Saying it's righteous. To protect truth, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. Examined separately and having no contact with each other. And false witness was punishable by death. A warning to that effect was required before any witness could testify. But verse 60 says that after many witnesses, they could not find two who agreed. In fact, Mark makes clear that the stories of the two witnesses they did come up with did not agree. But disregarding criteria for truth, they believed what they wanted to believe. They said they loved the truth, but they're afraid to look at the evidence. Do you and I love the truth? I know we say we do. When we have difficulty with what the Bible teaches or when we have difficulty with what somebody does, are we really willing to look at the evidence? Will we really spend the time to examine the claims or do we, like the Sanhedrin, just believe what we want to believe? Verse 59 reminds us that their goal was not really to uncover the truth, but to find evidence to justify killing Jesus because they hated him. And their opportunity came in verses 63 and 64 when they appeared to get Jesus in a trap. Consider what happened here. Jesus wouldn't answer them. He refused to add dignity to the sham of this uh, uh, proceeding. So Caiaphas turns the tables on Jesus by putting him under oath, charging him before God to speak the truth. And then he poses the question, which is, at, which is the crux of the whole matter. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now Caiaphas has Jesus right where he wants him, he thinks. If Jesus refuses to answer, he breaks a legally imposed oath, bringing guilt upon himself. If Jesus denies he's the Messiah, the crisis is over, but so is his influence. But if he affirms that he's the Messiah, then given the commitments of the court, Jesus must be false. Because no Messiah that they could conceive of would ever allow himself to be imprisoned and put on trial. This is not an honest search for truth. It's the creation of a dilemma on whose horns they hope to impale Jesus. We do that, don't we? It's almost funny to see people try to trap God. Funny if it weren't so rebellious. For example, people thinking themselves to be so wise throw out this. Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Ha ha, we got him caught now. He can't be true. Or how about this one? How can a good and powerful God allow suffering? Either he's not good enough to care or he's not strong enough to stop it. Ha ha, we've caught him now. We think we have God impaled on the horns of a dilemma. And our responsibility to seek out 
and, and, and do the truth is just erased because now we've caught him. So the Sanhedrin claimed to love the truth, but they would not listen to the evidence. Beware, we're not so different. Wickedness still claims to be righteous. And there's a third way that evil poses the truth. They claimed to be holy, but they were really were filled with hate. They claimed to be holy, but they were filled with hate. Listen again to verses 65 to 68. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Oh, this is impressive. What righteous indignation. What a show of hysteria at the idea that Jesus may have blasphemed God. What a love of holiness. What a love of piety. Caiaphas is unable to maintain his dignity. He's in the presence of such blasphemy. He tears his clothes as a show of humility. Oh, but then look at the hatred, the mocking, the cruelty, the spitting, the slapping, the scorn. Is this a lawful expression of holiness? Or is this not the unleashed hatred of a mob? Rebellions like that, you know, it maintains dignity for a while, but underneath is not holiness, but hatred. And folks, our own flesh is just like that too. So beware, for evil often poses as good. Wickedness puts on the clothes of righteousness. Well, that's what's going on here, if we think about it and understand it. But there's a second point here. Jesus, in spite of all of this, Jesus still confronts us with his claims. Jesus still confronts them and us with his claims. Few people really like confrontation. Most of us will avoid it if possible. But even people who enjoy confrontations really only pursue them when they're in a position of strength. That's where the Sanhedrin was. They held all the cards. Jesus was alone. Jesus was being held by force. They had him cornered. Now they could afford the confrontation with him that they avoided in, the, in, in front of the crowds. Ah, but Jesus only appears to be weak here. In the middle of their maneuvering, he confronts them. And in doing so, he also confronts us. For he speaks of his identity, which has the same implications for us as it had for them. The question he was asked was whether or not he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, listen to his answer in verse 64. Yes, it is as you say. But I say to you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now though Jesus knew that his understanding of what Messiah was was very different from what they thought Messiah would be, nonetheless he admitted under oath, I am the Messiah. 
Mark records his answer more pointedly. I am, he said. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Here's where the confrontation comes. He goes on to explain what his messiahship means. Negatively, he says it's not what they saw right then. He refers them to the future, saying in effect, what you see here is not all there is. That continues to be a problem for us, you know. We assume that what we see is the whole situation. We assume that if we get away with something confronting Jesus now, that it will be forever we'll get away with it. We assume that we will always have our present comfortable, controlling position. But Jesus says, no, you won't. In the future, you will see the real situation. And possibly Jesus unpacks what the Messiahship will entail. Now, we miss the point of this, or we're ignorant largely of the Old Testament, but the Sanhedrin did not miss the point. They were not ignorant. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus answered them by quoting two passages from the Old Testament. The first was in Psalm 110. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Think of the claims Jesus was making by applying that psalm to himself. That's a psalm where David says, the Lord said, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, sit right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here, he, Jesus is claiming to be not only David's son, but David's Lord. He claims God's power, claims to be the executor of God's rule. He claims to be, he claims all his enemies are his footstool. Probably a reference to them too. He claims to be the great high priest. In front of the acting high priest, he claims to be the great high priest sworn in by God himself. He claims to be the judge of all nations. And then he reads from Daniel 7. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, Jesus claims this applied to him. He is the one who will enter the presence of God himself. He is the one who will be given universal authority and sovereignty. He is the one who is worthy of the worship of everyone in the world. And since God is the one who commanded it, God declares him to be his equal. To this Messiah Jesus belongs God's indestructible, eternal kingdom. Make no mistake, Jesus knew what he was claiming to be. And the Sanhedrin understood it too. For that reason, they tore their clothes and shouted blasphemy. So was it blasphemy? It sounds like it. Unless, unless he was telling the truth. And that is a really big unless. <laughs> For if he is telling the truth, then they stand there thinking that they can stand in judgment of the Lord of glory, the judge of all the earth, the son of the living God, God's promised Messiah, the one David called my Lord. This is a huge issue. You would think claims with such huge con consequences would receive the most careful examination of the evidence. 
even more careful examination now that they understood his claim as he actually presented it. But wicked rebellion doesn't care about evidence. It is just evil, pretending to be good, hate, posing as holiness, wickedness, masquerading as righteousness, all the while refusing to submit to God. Folks, like it or not, Jesus still confronts us with the same claims. He claimed that he is God the Son, worthy of universal a universal and indestructible kingdom, worthy of worship. He still claims absolute royal authority. He claims that one day everyone, everyone will stand before him in judgment. And if his claims are true, then even today we must bow before his sovereign rule, forsaking every other allegiance and follow him. So how would we know if it's true or not? How would we judge? Where would we find the truth? Well, Saul of Tarsus, the Christian, the Christ-hater who later became Christian, later became the Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul gives us an answer. In Romans 1 verse 4, he says, as to his human nature, Jesus was a descendant of David. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. But he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Oh, that's something, isn't it? Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 15, after noting that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he had been seen by over 500 people at the same time, and most of them are still alive today. Go talk to them, he said. And Paul concludes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Luke's historical account, which we call the book of Acts, confirms this evidence. We read in Acts 1, after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he's alive. God raised him from the dead. That's the proof. If he did not, the Sanhedrin was right. It was all blasphemy. But if he did rise from the dead, his claims are true. They were rebellious fools who crucified the Lord of glory. And that's the issue we must all face. <clears throat> William Barclay writes, To this day, when a man is brought face to face with Jesus Christ, he must either hate him or love him. He must either submit to him or desire to destroy him. No man who realizes what Jesus Christ demands can possibly be neutral he must either be his loyal subject or his enemy. This one I call you leave no stone unturned to honestly examine the evidence. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he alive today at the Father's right hand? If Jesus was 
Indeed, declared, as we read in Romans 1, declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, then you owe him all allegiance, as I do. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our life. He is our only hope in God's judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have such a low view of truth these days. We just shoot from the hip. We don't think things through. We don't examine things. We don't look at the evidence. We kind of go with what somebody tells us, what we read somewhere. And consequently, our faith and our commitment to you, Lord Jesus, is about as flimsy because we're not really convinced very deeply of anything about it. And so we're not very committed. Father, may it stop with us. May we be serious about it. Either you rose from the dead, Lord Jesus, or you didn't. And if you did, may we know that for certain and live accordingly. Forbid that we should be like the Sanhedrin's people who look so pious every Sabbath day and yet hated you. Oh, Father, help us. Show us. Bring your truth to bear in our lives. May we be willing to listen and learn and follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find your hymnal. We're going to sing. A song about Jesus' suffering, number 248, 248.